You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Morning Redemption. Um, so I put in the scripture slides like five minutes ago. Um, and I put in the wrong translation. So if y'all thought that Dana was up here just freelancing, she was not. Um, that was my fault. Um, welcome to Redemption Church. We're a community of Jesus who are pursuing connection and redemption through grace and sharing and exploration. Really glad you're here. If you are new to redemption, we'd love to get a chance to get to know you. If you would uh, grab one of these cards that's in the seat in front of you, fill it out, and then drop it in the black box on your way out. Um, We'll have someone get in touch with you later this week. We also, you can go to redemptionhou.com slash today. There's a I'm new button. You can click that. Let us know that you're here. Say hello. You can also see some of the things that are going on um, in our church right now. So, Glad you're here. So we're in a series called According to the Spirit where we've been looking at this great hope um, that God is with us, but not just in some distant thing that happened at Christmas and not just in some future thing that will one day happen for us and to us, but right here, right now, this present future, this present hope that we have is actually welling up in us in the moment that the Spirit of God is actually here in us and with us. So we acknowledge that, yes, Jesus has freed us from sin and death, but that this is primarily marked by the presence of the Spirit of God. But what does this mean? Right, like, okay, cool. Uh, If I've been around church for any length of time, I've heard something like this. Nice, I've got the Holy Spirit. What are the implications of this? So I, I think a lot of us, especially if we've been around the church for a while. And if you haven't been around the church for a while, really glad you're here. This is a safe place for you to explore and encounter Jesus. It's a safe place to ask questions, to doubt, to not believe yet. We hope you do. Um, There's no expectation that you do. You are actually and fully welcome here. We'll let you in on a little secret. A lot of us want to follow Jesus. And if you didn't know this, uh, the church does a terrible job of actually doing it. We personally often feel stuck between like religious performance and religious apathy. Like I want to follow Jesus, but I'm either like caught in this trap of like legalistic, performative, like, well, I've got to check these boxes, but it really feels hollow and empty. And now God's mad at me because I didn't read my Bible or I didn't pray, but I prayed, but it wasn't long enough. Or we like slip into some other like, well, none of it really matters. And so like, I don't know, did I even think about God this week? I'm not really sure. Um, Yeah, I don't know. 
And we exist as a people in this tension of living um, in the chaos and death of a world that is still very much in the control and in the grip of sin. But as we live in that, we live as a people of life and peace. And, and many of us, like, sometimes we experience life and peace, but we wouldn't characterize our lives as being filled with life and peace. And there's this real tension of what, of what we think should be versus what we experience as reality, and I, I think we can address that this morning. How do we begin to understand and know how to survive in this tension, much less thrive in it? And really the question we're asking is, what do we do with our present sinful reality? Both the present sinful reality of like the world around us and the things that it is doing to us and to our neighbors, but also the present sinful reality that exists in our own hearts and minds and that we hesitate to even acknowledge in our inner selves, much less out loud to anyone else. This world of flesh is actually being invaded by the Spirit of God, but it doesn't seem like it. And similarly, our inner selves have been invaded by the Spirit of God, and for so many of us, it doesn't seem like it. So what do we do with that? Um, if anyone sees an iPad floating around, that's mine. That would be great. <laughs> so I'm good. I printed things out. No, no, we're good. It's okay. Really, I'm just making jokes. Um, so I like grabbed my, my, my iPad. And I'm like, I'll take it over here. And then I had five other things that I was doing in my head and then set it down somewhere. Chantal apparently knows where it's at. Um, and I was like, where did I put it? I'll just print this out and it'll be fine. Um, but yeah, so, so we tend to think in binary terms. Like as Western thinkers, right, it is ones and zeros. It is black and white. Uh, politically, it is right-winged or left-wing, and anyone in the middle is just fooling themselves. Right? We tend to be very black and white thinkers in the West. And I think this is problematic for our understanding of what Romans is trying to describe and help us with and instill in us. So um, one of the most helpful analogies for this actually came from Marshall. We were in Hub Group and we were sharing some stuff and I shared a little bit about this and Marshall was like, oh, that sounds a lot like the Silmarillion. Um, so J.R.R. Tolkien has, dude was so into this thing, like he invented a world and then wrote a book about it and then wrote another one and another one. It was like, man, this world is so awesome. I've got to write like a chronology of the history of this world that I've invented in my head. So it was like a history book about a fake history. Anyways, it's called the Silmarillion. Um, Amazon just spent like a billion dollars making movies about it or a series about it. But at the beginning of this, there's this explanation that in this world, there exists two competing songs. There's one song that's like seeking like the flourishing and the building up and the life of the world. And there's another that's seeking like the malformation of the world. And there's these two competing songs that exist in this world. And that um, I think is a helpful way of understanding this idea of flesh and spirit, this idea of this sinful reality and this present reality of Christ in us. So um, Douglas Campbell, who's a really excellent theologian, he was um, introduced to me by Zach. He's great. But he explains this in a really good way. So he does this in his class where he talks about that this flesh, flesh spirit dichotomy is, is not best understood as an either or, but as a both and. 
And so he's lecturing. Uh, he's a professor at Duke. He's lecturing, and he does this thing where he has fancy sound systems. Probably not that fancy. It's probably just a little box. Um, and he turns the volume up on like this death metal. And I've shared this with a lot of you all before. Like like Slipknot is like turned all the way up and is blaring through the speakers, and it's just like right. At the same time, he's playing Bach, but the volume's almost all the way off. It's 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 imperceptible, and all you hear is just and like double kicks. I'm trying to get Jason to go double kicks back here. Haven't convinced him yet. Um, and it's just booming, blah, 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 death metal filling the room. It's all you can hear. If you were to say, hey, hey, what's playing? Your experience is telling you that the only thing that's playing is uh, Slipknot. <laughs> Does anyone even know what Slipknot is? I'm like going back to like high school, like revealing a little bit of my past. Um, anyways, so you're entirely unaware that Bach is even playing. But then he, he raises the level of Bach and he lowers the level of Slipknot. And all, now all of a sudden there's like the, a little bit of chaos introduced as you realize, wait, hold on, there's another song that's actually playing right now. There are these two competing songs and they're filling the room. And I, like one is kind of drowning out the other and then the other is kind of drowning out, right? And it's kind of going back and forth. And our experience is that even though it was imperceptible to us at first, our experience told us that Bach was never playing. But as the volume was raised, our eardrums start to vibrate a little bit, and all of a sudden we experience, oh, no, 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 it's been there all along. I just couldn't hear it. It was playing the whole time. I just was unaware of it. And so then uh, Dr. Campbell turns Slipknot almost all the way off imperceptible, and he turns Bach up to, I don't know, whatever it's appropriate to turn classical music up to, like an eight, probably. And the room is just filled with the sound of this beautiful classical music. Right, and if we're going to go into the stereotypes of these two uh, genres of music, it's totally fine if you're leaving church today, or even if you rolled up to church today listening to Slipknot, there's no judgment, um, this is a safe place. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, but like stereotypically, if the room is now filled with Bach and not like Slipknot or whatever, there's like a little less anxiety, a little more peace. Right, if we were sitting down and writing an essay, I'm now able to focus a little bit more. And this uh, illustration, this analogy, like it's not perfect, but this is a better way of understanding this idea of what Luther called simultaneously sinner and saint. Of, of living in a world where, yes, it is still broken, it is still marked by chaos and sin and death, but also a world into which the kingdom of God is currently breaking in. Two competing songs. And we'll come back to this in just a second because you're like, cool, uh, what do I do with that analogy? And our, our binary way of thinking has actually led us into this sort of moral gospel. So I was talking briefly to a couple of you um, this week about, hey, we're 
doing Romans 8, and there's this whole flesh and spirit. And, and so many of us have been taught some version of the good news of Jesus of like, hey, Jesus, by his grace, has set you free. You are free, and you are saved, right? It's the language that we use. Like, yes, amen, we're saved. And then what happened was like this like uh, bait and switch, like saved by grace. And then, okay, now that you're saved by grace, here's the list of all the things you had better do or else. And one, I think that's a misunderstanding of what salvation actually is. We'll come back to that in a second. But two, all of a sudden we're saved by grace, but we are now sanctified, or the fancy word of saying made holy, made new, made like Jesus by our good efforts and our good works and our good intentions. And so when we read Romans 8, what we hear is, hey, the Spirit of God is there, but oh man, you better not tick him off or he's out. Or what we hear is the Spirit of God is there if you do these things right here. And if you don't do these things right here, well, then clearly the Spirit of God was never with you. So I remember um, one of the most impactful experiences of my life was um, I've only seen one person die in front of me. It was my grandfather. He was on hospice. Um, my mom had said, hey, uh, I don't think he's doing well. You should go there. I was in like very early stages of Bible college. Um, went and was there and was kind of just frozen as I watched him take his final breath, um, thinking in this moment, right, the weight of like, well, Mr. Preacher Man, hey, going into ministry guy. Hey, you work for a church, dude. Like, this is it. You're supposed to do something here. And I remember just being paralyzed and helpless and numb and the hospice nurse came in and she did what they so beautifully and gracefully do. She closed his eyes and helped him laid back and began to just recite Psalm uh, 23 over him. And in that moment, I felt guilt and shame for not performing. So here's this moment of intense, like, grief at the loss of this male figure that was one of the only male figures I had in my life. And the only thing I can think of is, you should have done better. Wow, you really screwed that up. Right, so going into this, if you were here last week, you're like, man, this dude. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm in therapy. It's great. Um, <laughs> um, so why I'm telling you this story is Several weeks later, I entered this internship um, with, it was a, a missions department at a big evangelical church here in Houston, and it was a group of, of people from all across the country who were going to go into some form of full-time ministry. I shared a little bit about that last week, but, but one of the conversations we ended up getting into was this one right here. And I knew my grandfather. I'd spoken deeply to my grandfather about like what he believed and what he thought and who Jesus was to him. And, and a man who never cried with tears in his eyes began to explain to me who Jesus was and what Jesus meant to him. And I'm like, oh man, something is going on in the heart of this, this man. And yet when I was surrounded by these 22-year-old uh, wannabe theologians, they're great people. Um, they were just a little, I don't know what. We literally had an hour-long conversation where they tried to convince me that my grandfather wasn't saved and that he was burning in hell because of passages like this. Well, did he have da, 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 marks of the Spirit? 
Because if he didn't, then, well, you know what that means. Paul's very clear here. I think what we're missing is actually what Paul is saying, and we're hearing it backwards. We're hearing it as this threat when in actuality, this is Paul, the author of Romans, he's actually giving reassurance. And you're in Christ if the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's not a threat, that's a promise. And I know you're in Christ because I know that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. We tend to fall into this moral gospel where we think that what Jesus is trying to do is fix our behavior. So let's dive in and let's look at this. So Romans chapter 8. Well, actually, I'm going to read verse 8. It won't be up on the screen because, again, I was in charge of the slides. Um, It ends, this last section where we ended last week says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God, right? So this is the threat. This is, ah, you better watch out. If you're in the flesh, you can't please God. We hear it this way when this is not actually what's being said. Verse nine, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. And I like the NIV for this reason, right? This idea of this is talking about like spheres of living, not not individual choices, although there's definitely overlap there. You are not in the realm of flesh because you've been moved over to the realm of the Spirit. You are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And this is where I don't like the NIV because it's if the Spirit of God lives in you, but what you don't hear is, and of course the Spirit of God lives in you. Didn't you just hear what I said in verse 1? If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. He goes on, verse 10. Oh, sorry, middle part of verse 9 there. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, and he is, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. This is not a threat This is not a, hey, you better shape up or ship out. This is a reassurance. I know you're confronting death. I know you're confronting your own sin, but I know that the Spirit of God lives in you, and he is a spirit of life. He is renewing you. He is restoring you, and I know that he will one day take your dead body and bring it back from the grave. This is not a threat. This is a hopeful reassuring idea. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. And what we see is this uh, future reality that explodes into our present life. This reassurance that in the future, God will one day actually really practically finally do something about death is now spilling out into right here, right now, in this moment. So whatever is wrong with humanity, or if I can be blunt. Whatever is wrong with me (laughs) is wrong at a very, very, very deep level. There's no amount of like good decisions. There's no amount of like five-year planning. There's no amount of therapy. There's no amount of whatever that is going to keep me from one day dying and rotting in the ground just like every single human who's ever existed, except for like three. Those of you that have been around the church for a while got that one. That's good. Paul insists 
that when Jesus takes on human nature, he is doing so to reorder, to redeem, in fact, to recreate what it means to be human. This is resurrection. And it's not something that we can do on our own. Jesus has done something about our condition. He has resurrected our human nature into a new form so that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is not a better person. He is not a more moral person. He is a new creature. He is changed. He is different. So our need is beyond morality. We don't just need like a better example. We don't need better rules. We don't need like better willpower. We're still like, anyone still doing the January New Year resolution thing? Congratulations, you've made it almost a month. You're, good job. Um, we don't need to be more optimistic. We don't need to know more Bible or more theology. Well, if I just knew more about what second, whatever says, second King says, then uh, somehow I would get, whatever. No, we need to be different types of people. And there's this axiom that floats around theological circles. Um, I hear it a lot from various people and in various ways, but it's essentially this. Jesus did not come to make bad people better. He came to give dead people life. This is not about making better decisions. It's about being something different. We are made into different types of people in Christ. And it's done so in a way that is not dependent or reliant on us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit who gives life. It's a work of God in us and around us. We need resurrection. So Paul says this, and the language that he uses here in Romans and in other places is Christ in you. So if Christ is in you is how he says it here, um, in 2 Corinthians, he says, if you are in Christ, or you see this phrase all over the place in Paul. Christ in you is this idea that even in the midst of this world of sin and death, we have already begun to experience our participation with Jesus. That the things that are true of Jesus are being made true of us, whether we deserve it or not, whether we're making good decisions or bad decisions. This is what symbolizes our baptism. When we go down under the water, our old self is being crucified with Christ in participation with him, and our new self, the new creation, the new us, is being resurrected by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. And so we have already begun to be brought back to life. So in Christ is us beginning to experience and to taste this resurrection that's going to come one day. We're new people. We're different people. Put it this way, we're, we're able to hear the other music that's playing. It's always been playing, but now suddenly something has turned the volume up a little bit. And wait, I, I think I might hear it. I think there might be something there. I think there might be something else other than death metal. And this resurrection is highlighted by a state of deep wholeness and enjoyment of God. We begin to see the world a little bit differently. We begin to see others a little bit differently. 
We begin to have joy when we shouldn't have joy. We begin to have hope when we shouldn't have hope. Christ in us is the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And the work that the Spirit of God does is the work of resurrection. This is who we are. This is our hope. This is how we can go about living differently in the world. So this present resurrection is only partial. I want to pause our conversation for just a second because Paul essentially pauses the conversation for just a second. We'll get into this more in depth down the road, but I want to make a little note here that's really important and really helpful to all of this. In verse 11, he says, and if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and he is, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Right, so so he's, Romans is doing two things here. One, he's reassuring you, like, hey, look, the, the type of God that dwells in you is the type of God who brings dead things back to life. The same spirit that rose Jesus up from the dead, we celebrate every year at Easter, is the same spirit that is dwelling in you right now, bringing your dead self back to life. But it's also the same spirit that will one day actually and finally and really bring your dead body back to life. And this is one of those things that uh, I feel like no matter how much we talk about it, I feel like Redemption Church talks about it a lot, is the most underrated and misunderstood essential pieces of the Christian faith. That to be saved is not to be disembodied and go and live in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. To be saved is to be embodied in earth in wholeness. And a new earth and a new body and a new creation is resurrection. The same type of resurrection that Jesus experienced. Wasn't metaphorical, wasn't some sort of spiritual principle wasn't a mindset. Touch my hands. Feel my side. Eat with me. Jesus was actually and really embodied and has assured us that we will one day actually and really be embodied. Now, if you're like 22 and you're hearing that, you're like, that's kind of cool, I guess. Um, That's neat but you're like going to leave here, going to go grab some McDonald's. You'll get it supersized. You might get a shake. And then you'll go home and you decide, I'm going to have some Chipotle for dinner. And I, let's, let's go to Freebirds. We'll get the giant one. And you, you're like, body will be like fine. Um, me, I'll drink half a beer. Won't be able to sleep all night. We'll wake up, be 10 pounds heavier. And be like, oh my God, death is crouching at the door, right? But in a more real way, um, so I've shared with y'all um, a little bit about some of what my wife struggles with, and it's just an ongoing battle, right? And so maybe y'all are like, dude, stop talking about it. <laughs> but I'm going to keep talking about it. I got the microphone. But it's also like, where does this matter? And I want to share with you where it matters for me. 
right? So my wife has been diagnosed with lupus, but even before that, uh, my wife and I's initial like relationship was one where I moved to Baltimore to be with her while she had like this major reconstructive surgery on her hips for some, something that she was born with. Um, it was a weird relationship, y'all. I went to Moody Bible Institute, so my life is weird to just know that about me. Uh, my family was freaking out. You know, here I am. I'm like, pastor track, going to go and do the Lord's work. And you're moving in with your girlfriend in Baltimore? Like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, we're going to be in the, the, the Ronald McDonald house. Uh, she's going to be in a bed for a month. This is not what you think. Um, but even back then, I mean, this was, gosh, 20 years ago now almost. Not quite, but almost. Um, this was when this idea of resurrection began to actually struck me. I had heard it. I had like, yeah, yeah, cool, yeah, absolutely. But I was, I don't know, 25 at the time. And then suddenly realizing that, that here was this person that I cared about that was in significant pain just constantly. And that the doctors were going to do something for her and it was going to hopefully help, help her fast forward. And here she is again with a chronic illness um, that is not going to go away unless some sort of miracle cure is invented in the next several years, that is at this moment in bed, in chronic pain, suffering from this debilitating disease, who will save us from these bodies of death? Our decaying mortal flesh that we cannot do anything about. We can work out, we can exercise, we can make better choices, but at the end of the day, from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, we all return to the ground. God, help us. The resurrection is not just an idea, it is our real hope. And I can be assured of that it is one day coming because right now I have seen in my own heart and my own life renewal, I am not the same person that I was 20 years ago. I'm also not perfect. (laughs) Our aching for redemption from our bodies and our longing for resurrection, our lament against death, we can all direct this to the risen Christ with real hope, real faith, real assurance that he has and is and will hear and answer our prayers. Jesus may not decide to heal Gabby today, but I know that one day he has promised me she will be made whole. We're not resurrected yet. And so we live in this tension. So how do we experience, how do we enjoy, how do we enter into the present resurrection that's begun in our inner selves? Romans will help us with this. But really the question is, how do we participate in the life of the Spirit that has already begun in us? Look at verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And I think, again, we hear a threat here um, in some ways that are just really unhelpful. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, which sounds like a word that no one wants to use in 2023. You're obligated to do this. Oh, cool. Now I'm on board. This sounds great. Thanks, God. 
But th- this word is indebtedness. You owe this to that, right? Which again, doesn't sound much better. But if you go back and you look at what Paul's been saying from chapter six to seven to eight, his whole picture that he's painted is, hey, you are enslaved to sin and death. The only thing you get, your reward for existing is death. Cool. You are indebted to death and all it's ever gonna give you is death. But now something has changed. Jesus has done something for the world. Jesus has done something for us. So now we are no longer obligated to death. We are obligated to life. We are indebted to life. We are indebted to the spirit of God. And so we don't have to live in the flesh, right? And we defined this last week, the flesh being our whole selves under this imposing influence of sin, right? So it's not just bad decisions. Well, I looked at some stuff on my laptop, so I'm living in the flesh. It's not moments in time. It is a state of being. You are no longer obligated to that realm, to that world, to that sphere of life anymore. You have been invited into the realm of life and peace and joy. And you can really actually participate in it regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of what's going on in your life. Because no matter what anyone does to your body, he will one day get you back up. This is the argument that he's making. And so we recognize that the old us, the body of death, the flesh, is still here, still attempting to impose and influence us but we should always recall that it has brought us nothing but death. It's never earned us anything. And so we owe that old life nothing and instead ought to live as if we owe God everything. So this morning, um, I really struggled with with this passage. So my my normal routine is like, I'll work on the the sermon a little bit early in the week, kind of get an idea of, general broad direction and then Thursday we'll kind of nail out some details Friday we're really like create some space sit down hammer it out well Friday came none of that had happened some of it had I'm being uh over dramatic a little bit I tend to do that um and so this morning I'm like uh I know that I've got to write this sermon and I'm just feeling really fearful and really anxious and really like um not in a great place. Like I'm sitting here going, hey, your life should be highlighted by peace and joy. And I'm like, I got none of that. I got no peace. I got no joy. I got, I got none of what you're describing here. And I'm trying. I'm really trying. I'm praying. I'm begging. Like, Lord, I need your help. And all I could hear was death metal. <laughs> like in a pretty profound and significant way. And the irony is, I'm preparing this message and realizing, like, I can't find myself here. Like, how can I stand up in front of these people and be like, hey, be like me. Enter into this life of joy and peace and delight and love like me when I am struggling. And then I kept praying and kept preparing 
And like, there was no like grand solution, right? If you're waiting for like, yeah, and then God spoke to me and it was all made better and here we are, right? Don't worry, that part's not coming. But, but part of, um, at least at Redemption Church, part of what it means to be a pastor is, hey, I'm, I'm the chief sinner among you. Let me show you how to follow Jesus as an imperfect human being. Not to be the perfect human being that can be Jesus for you, but to show you as I'm limping along, look, I am struggling. I'm not very good at this. You really, you can do it. I promise. Like if I can do it, you can do it. And I insisted as I'm driving here this morning, I insisted on believing, no, 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 no. There's, a, there's more music playing. There's a different music playing. I just can't hear it right now. And I, and I began to take it a step further. Like, but, but like, how can I hear it? I want to hear it. I'm trying to hear it. I don't hear it. What do I need to do to hear it? And, and this, uh, this theologian, uh, Douglas Campbell, who kind of uses this analogy, he asked this question, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I want to get this tattooed on my neck. Like, this is great. <laughs> I guess then I wouldn't see it, but y'all would see it. Um, <laughs> It's, just, it's a very simple question. He's using this analogy, using this like, music thing. There's two things playing. Where do you go to hear God? Right, and, and we can have like, all sorts of weird answers to that. This is not like a, I don't know, where do you go to hear God? I don't know. Right? Um, how do I turn the music up? I'm driving here. And I'm like wrestling with that question in my head. Like, I don't know. I can't turn the music up. The music's broken. Right? The music's not there. The music has been turned off for me. Just me? No? Okay. And then suddenly it hit me. And I realized I need to show up. I need to be, a, be among the people of God who, who can hear the music because maybe they can hear it for me. I need to be around the people of God who maybe are experiencing the joy of the Holy Spirit, because maybe they can experience a little bit of it for me. I need, I need to be in the congregation of the worshiping community, because maybe there the music will be a little bit louder. And as I sat in here and prayed with many of you, and I had conversations with many of you, and as I'm standing here in this moment, I can tell you the music isn't all the way up and the slip not all the way down, but I can tell you that the music is significantly louder than it was four hours ago. Here in the presence of the people of God. Where do I go to hear the music? Go to the people of God. It's communion. It's why we do hub groups. It's why we gather week after week after week. It's why we insist that your spiritual life does not need to be anything more than prayer. The other stuff is great. The other stuff is helpful. The other stuff is fine. But if you're not doing any of the other stuff and you're just sitting down and going, God, I'm here. I don't know what to say, but I'm here. I'm in your presence. And you just sit with God. That is spiritual life. That is communion. That is where the volume begins to be cranked up. And so we see this uh, in different words in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. How do I turn the music up on the Spirit and turn it down on the flesh? It's not about, right, it's not about a list of behaviors. Here's the magic formula, and if you do A, B, and C, then all of a sudden you will be Holy Spirit-filled and you will hear the Lord, right? Rather, it's participation, showing up, it's communion. participating in the life of the Spirit that is ongoing and is already at work, whether you hear it or not. The Spirit of God is alive and He's active. And so participation does not mean that we are perfect, that we're like somehow morally righteous or better than the people next to us. Participation means that we show up and we entrust ourselves to God and we surrender to his grace, to the work of the Spirit in and around us. And we do it again next week and next week and next week and next week because we're clinging to the God of resurrection, believing that he's working in our souls to make us new. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.